Welcome to this special episode of Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt. And today, I'm here to listen to the man, the myth, and the legend himself, Ira J. Kurzban, discuss the DACA decision, aka DHS et al., the Regents of the University of California et al., published by the Supreme Court on June 18th, 2020. In order to keep our social distance, I'm currently on a recorded Zoom call with Ira. We'll be speaking about the Supreme Court's decision and its implications for the DACA recipients themselves, immigration practitioners, administrative law, and the Supreme Court's jurisprudence. So, without further ado, let's start the review. As many of our listeners know, Ira is kind of the godfather of immigration, and he's been at it for over 40 years, continuously pushing the law forward with creative legal arguments and nationwide litigation. He's argued on behalf of immigrants before the Supreme Court three times, and he's the author of Kurzban's Immigration Law Sourcebook, the 17th edition of which will be published later this year. In recent years, he's dedicated significant efforts to the Political Action Committee Immigrants List, supporting candidates for political office that advocate for comprehensive immigration reform and stopping anti-immigration policies. He's the founder of the Immigration Department at KKTP, and he is my mentor, law partner, and friend. Welcome to the show, Ira, and thank you for being here. Thank you, Kevin. It's a pleasure to be here, and it's a great opportunity to talk about a very complicated decision in DACA, and I hope your listening public will enjoy it, uh, because there's a few different decisions. There's a lot of law involved, and there, of course, as always, is a lot of politics involved. Sure is, and excited to jump into it. So just getting started, how do the justices rule? How do the votes come down? And what are some insights that we can take away from the onset? The decision was five to four. There are concurring and dissenting parts of different opinions. So everybody had a chance to say their piece, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, they all are kind of reflective of different views of the law and of the court, I think. And it's kind of a good example of what happens in these kinds of situations where, you know, the court is divided and they're often divided on different lines. So it, it begins to look like some of the British decisions, you know, usually in our system, there's more uniformity. I think as of late, what you're finding is that there is more uh, disunity on legal principles more than necessarily disunity on the result. So, you know, what you had here was a decision by Justice Roberts, and that is considered the majority opinion of the court, joined in by four liberal justices. And then you had actually Justice Sotomayor's decision, uh, which was concurring in the result and dissenting in Section 4 of the opinion. And Section 4, of course, was the section on equal protection. And Justice Thomas's opinion, I can go into, was joined in by Justice Alito and Justice Gorsuch. And then you had 
Justice Kavanaugh's opinion separately, and also I think Justice Alito, if I recall, Justice Alito also issued a separate opinion as well, uh, his opinion concurring in the judgment and dissenting in part, obviously dissenting on the grant of DACA. Thanks for the initial breakdown, Ira, and I know you got a lot more to say about each individual decision later on. For now, let's turn to the holding in the case. The decision in the court basically upholds the decision to enjoin the government from the rescission of DACA. That's basically what the holding is. In other words, they've affirmed the lower court's injunction. The lower courts enjoined the government's effort, which was by Sessions and then by Secretary Duke and later by Secretary Nielsen of the Department of Homeland Security to rescind the original DACA program. In a nutshell, what is DACA and how did it come to be? DACA grew out of a movement, really, of young people in the United States around 2008, 2009, 2000. And to demand, really, some fairness in the system to children who were brought to the United States, you know, not by their own volition, but brought to the United States with their parents, and they were undocumented. Uh, And they later became known as dreamers, because these kids had come into the United States with their parents, having uh, no decision on their own when they were very, very young. Most of them came in when they were very young children. By definition, in DACA, they were under 16 years of age. And what they said is, look, we're here, we we want to go to college, and some of them were outstanding students. They were people who were getting scholarships to universities like Harvard and others, and they couldn't go because they had no lawful status at all. So in recognition of these people, what did Congress and the Obama administration do? The administration under President Obama was pushed repeatedly to try and do something for these kids. Bills were introduced in Congress. The Senate passed a DACA bill. The House refused to bring it up several times. The Republican-controlled House just simply refused to bring it up for a vote because they knew if it was brought up, it would have been voted in favor of the kids. So by 2012, the president decided, along with the uh, secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, who was then Janet Napolitano, to start a program called what we now call DACA, which is Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival. And the idea was to allow those children to be in the United States, many of whom are now adults, to allow them to remain in the United States. And as part of remaining in the United States, of course, they got certain benefits. They were eligible for Medicare or Social Security. They were also given the opportunity to file for employment and get an EAD card. Those issues became much more important as this went on, because after all, what is DACA? All it is is a program that says we will not deport you. Uh, it doesn't say, it doesn't give the DACA kids any real rights. It gives them certain benefits, but basically it says we just will not deport you. Right, but with Congress having failed to act, the administration didn't stop there. It wanted to defer the removal of more people. 
Yeah, in 2014, President Obama exercising his authority as president and Department of Homeland uh, Security Secretary, who was then Jay Johnson, exercising his authority, expanded DACA, what we call expanded DACA, which would include more people who came in at an earlier time and who uh, actually were older in age. And there was no age limit put on the upper end of how old they were now. And it also included another program called DAPA, which was uh, deferred action for parental arrivals. In other words, saying for those parents who had United States citizen children, that they would be allowed to stay in the United States as well under the same conditions, meaning simply that they would not be deported. As a result of the expanded DACA and the initiation of DAPA in 2014, lawsuits were brought in the United States. And this is, again, both a political and a legal issue, because what you're saying is different groups, conservative groups, bring all of their actions in the Southern District of Texas. And this action, of course, was brought in the Southern District of Texas. They argued on expanded DACA and on DAPA that uh, it required notice and comment, that the president just didn't have the authority to do it. The judge issued a 125, 27-page decision that said, in the end, the president or the executive branch have to have DAPA and expanded DACA, but only through notice and comment rulemaking where the public would have a right to respond. Gotta love the Southern District of Texas. I guess that brings us to present day. What next? Then, of course, uh, Donald Trump becomes president. He appoints Jeff Sessions, an ardent uh, anti-immigrant advocate for years in the Senate to become the attorney general. And the first thing they do is say, we're no longer going to fight the DAPA and expanded DACA cases. In other words, remember, before then, the government was taking the position that they were lawful. This administration comes in and says, we're not going to defend it anymore. And they leave the uh, order in place in joining DAPA and in joining the expanded DACA. But that wasn't good enough for Trump and Sessions. So what they then did is they issued a letter, Sessions issued a legal opinion that basically said, we believe DACA initially is illegal, that the president didn't have the authority to do it, which of course is ironic given the use of presidential power on Trump. They said the president didn't have the authority to do it. And besides, it would be uh, fruitless to continue to defend this because DAPA and expanded DACA were unsuccessful. So why would we spend Justice Department resources fighting it? Which of course is ironic, also given the fact that this administration is fighting everything all the time in immigration. So much so they've exhausted really the resources of the Office of Immigration Litigation and they've now had to rely on U.S. attorneys all around the country to defend their immigration. But putting that aside, Sessions said not legal and not good policy to do this. And then recognizing that he didn't have the authority to suspend and terminate DACA, he turned it over 
to the Secretary of Homeland Security, who was then Elaine Duke. And Elaine Duke issued a very short note, two or three pages, that basically said she's going to withdraw DACA and terminate the program for the reasons specified by the Attorney General, and that she's going to end the program, allow people to have their employment authorizations until they expire, but nobody can renew DACA, and it would just end within the next two-year period. So the Trump administration ends DACA. And, And then what happened, of course, is there were lawsuits filed. And these lawsuits were filed in the Northern District of California. They were filed in, uh, in the Southern District of New York and uh, one other location, I believe, in Maryland. The, the causes of action essentially were that the government's decision to withdraw was arbitrary and capricious. The government's decision to withdraw DACA was in violation of the notice comment provisions. And it was unconstitutional because invoking equal protection, they said that basically Trump, uh, given all his speeches and statements that he made, amounted to discrimination based on uh, alienage. Appreciate that comprehensive history, Ira. Now, with this decision ultimately coming down to a violation of the Administrative Procedures Act, would you mind giving us a bit of background on the APA? The Administrative Procedures Act was passed in 1946. It was designed to have some kind of check over administrative agencies, uh, has a whole series of provisions that stem from what we call notice and comment rulemaking, that if an agency is going to pass some new rule that will affect lots of people, that they must first publish it in the Federal Register and give the public an opportunity to comment because it was recognized after the Second World War that our agencies were really functioning to some extent uh, as little governments creating their own laws and so forth. And the question is, would there be any check on the administrative state? And the Administrative Procedures Act was meant to do that. It was meant to say, uh, we will look at an agency's decision and if it's arbitrary and capricious, we will nullify that decision or reverse it and give it an opportunity to make a new rule that isn't arbitrary or capricious. Same thing with any agency that acts in violation of law. It could be in violation of the Constitution. It could be in violation of an existing statute like the Immigration and Nationality Act. Or it could be that the agency is just refusing to make a decision. So there are provisions under the Administrative Procedures Act that require the agency um, within a reasonable amount of time to make a decision. And so the APA was passed with those things in mind. There were exceptions. One of those exceptions, which Justice Roberts dealt with in this, is what they call committed to agency discretion. In other words, a matter that's totally committed to an agency's discretion is not something that's reviewable in a federal court. For example, the classic example, actually, is the Navy wants to build a certain kind of battleship uh, as opposed to a different kind of battleship. And someone sues uh, who was a contractor on the battleship that they decided 
uh, not to uh, utilize, and the person sues. The courts have generally said that kind of decision uh, is within the agency's discretion. It's committed to the agency's discretion. We, as judges, have no uh, expertise and no authority to sit on a case like that. But as Justice Roberts points out, it's a very narrow exception to the APA. And, you know, I can give you examples. We uh, did a, a very well-known case against the Department of State who imposed a sanction against a, a client of ours. And we argued that it was arbitrary and capricious. The government said, no, it's committed to agency discretion. We can fine people or or impose uh, penalties as we like. And the court said, no, that isn't the committed to agency discretion doctrine. As long as there are criteria that we can look at and enforce, then uh, the courts have a right to be involved. Wait a minute. Before we move on from this distinction, are you telling me that if the Navy wanted to rename the USS John McCain to the USS Trump, it's unreviewable? Could that be challenged under the APA? Um, I doubt it. I mean, unless they had very detailed procedures in which how they determined they would name a ship or not. Thanks for indulging me, Ira. I'll let you get back to the APA issues in this case. And so in this case, the first issue, of course, was, is this committed to agency discretion by law? Because it's prosecutorial discretion. And prosecutorial discretion to either, in this case, deport people or withholding the deportation of people is generally considered a matter that's exclusively left to the agency itself, committed to agency discretion. And what Justice Roberts did is he started out, of course, talking about the broad presumption of review. In other words, any case comes to the court with a presumption that it is reviewable and cited well-known cases that were very well-known for the presumption of judicial review. He then looked at the committed to agency discretion doctrine and said it's a very narrowly defined doctrine and said in this case, it really didn't apply because this wasn't just a matter of administrative discretion. Uh, It wasn't a matter of an agency deciding like a prosecutor who they would prosecute or not, because this involved other matters as well. And he pointed to the fact that the Fifth Circuit um, zeroed in in its decision in joining DAPA and expanded DACA on the benefits. The Fifth Circuit said, look, we think DACA is not appropriate. Uh, beyond the president's authority, because it also includes other benefits. It's not just prosecutorial discretion. It's giving people work authorization. It's saying they're eligible for certain kinds of benefits. And that's what the Fifth Circuit objected to and said that's why you need notice and comment, etc. So the court says this is not committed to agency discretion because if you look at the lower court decisions on DACA, it's all about these other benefits, not just about kind of naked prosecutorial discretion. So we covered APA reviewability. And then? So he then went on to look at two other very important issues for lawyers who practice in this field. 
because the government said, well, uh, even if it's not committed to agency discretion, it's barred under Section 242B9 and 242G. 242B9 of the Immigration Act tries to kind of swoop up all issues, motions to reopen, other issues within the framework of a removal decision and say those can only be brought in the Court of Appeal. Right. These pesky jurisdiction stripping provisions, also referred to as preclusion statutes, are some of our arch enemies in federal court. But there's some good in the majority's holding. Yeah, this decision of Justice Roberts, I think, is quite important because what he's saying is the decision not to prosecute is not part of an order of removal. And they're not challenging here, the plaintiffs were not challenging when they sought the uh, injunction against Sessions uh, and Duke, that they were not challenging a removal proceeding. So it took it out of 242B9 because that has to do with channeling all matters to the Court of Appeals, sidestepping the district court when it involves removal proceedings. And Chief Justice Roberts said, no, in this case, 242B9 does not apply because they're not challenging a removal proceeding. They're challenging the decision to withdraw DACA, and DACA is just a procedural mechanism to prevent uh, people from actually being placed in deportation or being deported, but you're not challenging the removal proceeding itself. Okay, one statutory enemy down, one to go. And then he uh, uh, looked at Section 242G, and 242G says if it's a decision to commence proceedings, adjudicate cases, or execute removal orders, they're barred from the district court. Again, in fact, they're completely barred. In other words, you can't sue the government with respect to uh, a decision to commence proceedings, adjudicate cases, or execute. And Justice Roberts said the decision here, the prosecutorial decision uh, not to go forward, and all these other benefits, remember, and that's the core of it, that those are not part of 242G. They don't have to do with the decision to commence a proceeding or adjudicate a case or execute a removal order. I think there's some interesting questions about that, but he's now read 242G extremely narrowly, which I think is a benefit in the future, and people should point to this case. Right, to argue for a narrow interpretation of the INA's jurisdiction stripping provisions and in favor of judicial review. That's correct. In other words, these are all either judicial preclusion provisions or judicial stripping, as you put it, uh, decisions or decisions that would simply not allow any action because the court has no jurisdiction to hear the matter by virtue of its committed to agency discretion or it's precluded under these various federal statutes. So the plaintiffs get over the jurisdictional hurdle, which is always one of the biggest problems for the immigration bar in federal litigation. And getting to the merits then, why did the majority find that the Trump administration's rescission of DACA was arbitrary and capricious? 
As I said initially, doc, uh, the APA has a provision that says that if an agency acts in an arbitrary and capricious manner, that their decision will not be upheld and that it will be remanded back to the agency to make a new decision. Sometimes agencies come in, and this was one of those cases, when they realize they have a weak case and try and bolster it by giving new reasons after the lawsuits are filed. And that's what happened here. Remember, Duke resigned or was one of the many Department of Homeland Security people, one after the other, who resigned or, or, or fired by Trump. So uh, after Duke came Nielsen, and Nielsen offered some of the reasons that Duke offered, but she offered many more reasons as to why the government had the right to rescind DACA. So there was an issue, and one of the major and interesting issues in this case is in examining whether or not the government acted arbitrarily and capricious, does the court just focus on Elaine Duke's decision, or they focus both on Duke and Nielsen's decision? The court said, there's a doctrine of post hoc rationalization. And that doctrine says you can't later on come up with new reasons to justify what you did. And the court said that's what happened here. We're going to discount what Nielsen wrote because Nielsen's letter and notice rescinding is merely a post hoc rationalization to bolster what was not in Elaine Duke's original decision to rescind. This becomes important in two of the dissents because in Justice Thomas's dissent, he said, well, that wasn't a post hoc rationalization. That was a new decision by uh, Nielsen and therefore the agency and the courts had to abide by it. Justice Kavanaugh takes a view of post hoc rationalization that I think the Chief Justice pointed out was uh, not based in law. Justice Kavanaugh says uh, post hoc rationalizations only apply to the lawyers who are fighting the case. It doesn't apply to the uh, agency itself and changing its decision. And there's really no authority for that. I mean, there are many cases that say the lawyers have come in and they've now made a new argument here in court. That's a post hoc rationalization. It's not permissible uh, under the Chenery Doctrine, but it wasn't only limited to that. It's anybody making a post hoc rationalization. That's what Justice Roberts said. So um, he then focused on uh, Elaine Duke's decision and he ultimately concluded that Helene Duke's decision was arbitrary and capricious for two reasons. First, it, it confused the forbearance policy and removing benefits. And by that, I mean, again, that this wasn't only a matter of prosecutorial discretion not to prosecute or forbear their deportation as but it also involved these benefits that were given to people. And that was the basis originally for the determination that it was illegal. So Justice Roberts said, look, 
if Elaine Duke had just relied on uh, the, the legal decision of Sessions, um, that may have been okay, but she didn't do that. She went beyond that and said that the forbearance policy was impermissible without uh, uh, focusing on the benefits that people were given. And he said that that was arbitrary and capricious. And he gave an example of another agency action where there were seat belts and airbags and carts many years ago. People challenged the seatbelt provision and the agency threw out both the seatbelts and the airbag restraints. And the court said, no, that that, you know, the, the issue was only seatbelts and you've gone further and thrown out the, you know, as you would say, the baby with the bathwater. You, you have uh, here decided to throw out everything, not just the benefits, but also the forbearance policy without any explanation. Second part, which I think is extremely important, is the reliance interest. In other words, Chief Justice Roberts says, Elaine Duke-Staling was not only not considering the benefits and the forbearance policy, but not considering the reliance interest of the DACA kids when making uh, her decision. In other words, this program had been in effect for really uh, now six years, and uh, there was no consideration of the effect, that is the reliance effect, by the uh, DACA kids. And the reliance interest is a very important doctrine for those who practice under the APA. Uh, this goes on all the time. I mean, uh, just this past uh, week, the government has been uh, sued on reliance interests, um, you know, where they have one policy and then they abruptly change it for a second policy. They don't publish it in the Federal Register. They don't do anything else. Here, Justice Roberts didn't rely on notice and comment, but he did say that failure to consider in her decision and discuss the reliance interest of the DACA kids who would now be subject to deportation was an arbitrary decision on her part. And uh, ultimately, for that reason, and for the, uh, the reason of confusing the forbearance policy and removing benefits, he determined that the decision of the agency was arbitrary and capricious, and what you normally do in that situation is you remand it back to the agency for a new opinion. Now, of course, that's the legal analysis. I can also talk very briefly about uh, Justice Thomas's opinion. Yeah, let's hear a bit about what the dissents had to say about the APA challenge, starting with Justice Thomas. Uh, his opinion was that the president never had the authority to begin with and that uh, everything else flows from that. If he doesn't have the authority, then there's no basis for the issuance of any kind of forbearance policy. I found that interesting because um, right in the Immigration and Nationality Act, uh, it's clear that the Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security has the authority, uh, exercise the authority not to prosecute. 
Uh, they're arguing, well, but this wasn't an individual decision not to prosecute. It was taking a whole group and saying that that group would now be exempt from prosecution. And that's different, and they have no authority to do that. The agency from the very beginning has always argued, until Trump came in and abandoned it, has always argued that these were case-by-case decisions because they had to be. In other words, each person, they had to look at the application for DACA. They had to make a determination, does the individual qualify for the forbearance or not? Of course, this undercuts Justice Thomas's typical broad view that uh, of the unitary executive, which is that the president is all powerful like a king. And here, Thomas's opinion is going to be used against them, certainly in the recent expansion and the challenge to President Trump's completely rewriting the Immigration and Nationality Act and barring both residents and non-residents from entering. Because where does he get that authority from? And so I think the decision of Justice Thomas to limit the authority of the president is somewhat ironic and will probably come back and haunt him, Justice Gorsuch, and Justice Alito. I guess time will tell. Then uh, Justice Alito issued his own concurring opinion with Thomas and Gorsuch, but his opinion just focused on this is all political, this is a political matter, Congress tried to pass DACA for a very long period of time and wasn't able to, but that's not our job. Of course, that kind of sidesteps the issue, which is does the agency have the right to do it? And then there was the decision of Justice Kavanaugh who focused, as I said before, on this kind of notion of post hoc rationalization that it only applies to lawyers making arguments and that in fact, this was a new decision by Nielsen. Right. And the Chief Justice was not having any of that. So turning to Justice Sotomayor's concurrence and dissent, as I understand it, her dissent takes issue with the seemingly high bar that Chief Justice Roberts placed on the asserted equal protection claims. That's correct. And Justice Sotomayor, uh, in a dissent of that section of the opinion, says, uh, in effect, that there were sufficient allegations here of Trump's bias and prejudice uh, to meet the threshold requirements of Arlington Heights and to demonstrate that a prima facie case. And so uh, her opinion really just focuses on equal protection. So it went on the APA, but not so much for equal protection. And for now, DACA is saved. Ira, what do you think is happening behind the bench? First of all, this is obviously highly politically charged, right? I think Justice Roberts voted in a majority really to save the court as an institution uh, more than anything else. And the opinion is quite detailed, but also I would say quite convoluted in certain respects. And I think he wanted to reach the conclusion that he did more because he was concerned that if DACA went the other way, five to four, that the court's legitimacy would be in jeopardy because it would just look like what it often is, which is just five conservative people voting against four liberal people, which means that the court is just perceived as another political institution. The fact that Mitch McConnell refused to appoint a justice to the Supreme Court 
for over a year uh, and then appointed, you know, a very conservative justice in one of the most hypocritical moments, I think, ever uh, of any member of the United States Senate, politicized the court and his effort to just put judges, no matter how unqualified on the court, who are ideologically on the most extreme uh, end of the conservative spectrum, has politicized the court enormously. And so Chief Justice Roberts recognizing, I think correctly, that the court is a very important separate institution and is not just a political extension of Mitch McConnell or Donald Trump, and is going to be there for the very long run, hopefully, establishing what Justice Marshall said over uh, 220 years ago, you know, that the court is the final word on what is the law in America and established really the principle of the rule of law. So in the midst of all this highly politicization of the court by McConnell and Trump and others, I think he's trying to save the legitimacy of the court. And one of the ways to do that is to show that, look, uh, we don't always vote along ideological lines. Uh, here I follow the Administrative Procedures Act. But at the same time, he really stuck it to the liberals to quite an extent, I would say, in part four of the opinion by so narrowly construing equal protection as to make it extremely difficult in the future to bring those equal protection claims. Ira, in that vein, how do you think this decision affects the various challenges to the Trump administration's immigration actions currently pending throughout the federal courts? I think the reliance issue that Chief Justice Roberts raised is very important in many cases because this administration particularly has radically changed policies, often without any care as to whether it was legal or not. And so people who relied on the former policy, even if the new policy is legal, uh, may have a claim. And I think he's really expanded in many ways the arbitrary and capricious doctrine. I mean, I think by saying what he has said here and kind of finding a, a very finely tuned analysis of the arbitrary and capricious doctrine, saying that it must be a reasoned decision and a decision that kind of throws out everything at one time, which is the tendency of the Trump administration, is not necessarily a reasoned decision. So I think it will have implications later on in other cases. And then, of course, even more so on the preclusion statutes, the ones that I talked about, 242B9. So his narrow construction of 242B9 is very helpful. Uh, for people who are litigating, and 242G. For example, people seeking stays of deportation may be able to rely on 242G analysis of Chief Justice Roberts and DACA only because he seems to so narrowly construe it as saying, if it really wasn't in a removal proceeding, then it doesn't count and is not barred or precluded. I agree. Very, very helpful for us immigration practitioners. Now, what about the 700,000 DACA recipients? What should they be doing in light of this decision? They should absolutely make sure that their status as DACA is kept up. 
They should reapply, reapply for work authorization, reapply for DACA if time is running out to protect themselves. This site's been going on for a long time, and my hope is there will be somebody else in the White House on January of 2021 that will once again take a new look at DACA and, and if there's both a the Democratic House and the Democratic Senate, we may, and a Democratic president, we may in fact have a new law that will cover all the DACA people and give them residency. Thank you so much for taking us to school, Professor Kurzban. If they're like me, the Immigration Review listeners very much appreciated your beautiful Brooklyn accent and brilliance. <laughs> Before we go, and because you touched on a Democrat-held House, Senate, and Presidency, what is Immigrants List? And how can listeners get involved? In 2006, a group of lawyers got together, including myself, and we came to the conclusion, really, that because of the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act of 1996, that there was very little maneuverability as to helping people. And the law had so many draconian provisions, mandatory detention, the three and 10 year bar, the stop time rule, the uh, description of waivers as narrowly construed, taking out children as a basis for a waiver, and one can, and all the preclusion statutes that we're dealing with now, they were all part of the 1996 Act. And the view was, this is not going to all go away by litigation. We need to change the Congress. We need to change people's attitudes in a bipartisan way, if we can, to elect people, Republicans and Democrats, who are pro-immigration. And since 2006, We've been doing that. We have a good track record. We've won about 70% uh, or more of the positions in the House and Senate we've backed. We have some very strong supporters of immigration now in the Congress that we did when we started. People like Senator Cortez Mastos from Nevada, Senator Tammy Duckworth from Illinois, and many members of the House uh, Congresswoman uh, Jayapal from the state of Washington, uh, all people who we have supported and have been recipients of awards of immigrants list over the years, and we've built very close relationships with them, which you know hopefully will make a difference in the future. This year, Immigrants List is focusing almost exclusively on getting rid of Donald Trump. Trump, in effect, has ended all immigration. I think my colleagues often don't realize that when they talk about the minutiae and details of what's going on. But if you look at Trump's April 22nd order, which was just expanded yesterday to include non-immigrants, it's basically shut down all immigration from outside of the United States with certain narrow, limited exceptions and done it under the guise of COVID-19, and he's really weaponized COVID-19. And so Immigrants List is gonna to respond to that challenge. And Immigrants List has a PAC, uh, which uh, gives political donations directly, but it also has a C4, Immigrants List Civic Action Inc., which is designed to uh, inform the public, educate the public, get out the vote, inform people about the voting records, 
of the, of the various candidates who are running, including Trump. And uh, hopefully we'll have a new president in the White House in January. Thanks a lot. And thank you to all the hardworking people at Immigrants List. We'll be sure to provide the link in our show notes, which is immigrantslist.org, correct? That's correct. And I appreciate it if people go to it, support it, um, because really, if Trump remains after January, I think we're going to see the end of immigration. He's already closed the border with Mexico and Canada. He's closed all immigration outside of the United States. He's slowed down immigration in the U.S. with public charge and instructions to slow everything down now, changes in asylum. It's really going to be the end of immigration as we've known it. Well, I'm thankful that Immigrants List is there to prevent that. And thank you for joining the Immigration Review Podcast to talk about the DACA decision today. I really appreciate it, Ira, and I hope the listeners appreciated it as well. So thank you so much, and please be safe. I hope to see you soon. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thanks for doing this, Kevin. Thank you, Ira. Have a great day. Take care. And there you have it. You're all caught up with the DACA decision, brought to you by none other than Ira J. Kurzban. Fun fact, as I always try to note, the J in Ira J. Kurzban stands for J. I hope you enjoyed this special bonus episode. I know I did. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion of the week's published immigration decisions. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.